Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. So good to see you turning your Bibles to Daniel 2. Daniel 2 is where we're going to be, second half of Daniel. Now, um, as a kid, one of my favorite things about going out to get Asian food was the fortune cookies at the end of the meal. Do I have any fortune cookie fans here in, in the audience? Okay. There's something about fortune cookies. Now, when I was a kid, I remember when fortune cookies were really fortune cookies. What I mean by that is, you know, when you would get a fortune cookie years ago, when I was a kid, it was like, you're going to meet someone mysterious this week. You're like, ooh. Now, I don't know about you, if you've been keeping up with the fortunes that are in fortune cookies, I don't know if they, they've unionized. I don't know if they, you know, they're paying minimum wage. But like, I'm getting them now. There's like, don't forget to water your plants. I'm like, that's not a fortune. They're telling me what to do now. And no one wants fortunes that are like that. But, you know, when it comes to fortune cookies, and we know that's a distinctly American thing, there's something about the human condition, about human beings, that we have an interest in the future. We have a curiosity about, about what thing, how things are going to work out in the future. And so, you know, there's all kinds of things that we as human beings do. And sometimes we get in dangerous or, or maybe not so healthy kind of practices to figure out what the future holds. You know, so that's why some people go to uh, palm readers or tarot card readers or, or they read horoscopes, things that we don't believe have any biblical basis and can be quite dangerous for some people spiritually. Um, but, you know, sometimes uh, as a kid, I remember, and I don't think they even have them on the grocery store stands anymore, but remember the National Enquirer? They would always have, you know, the, the predictions of the year and people would buy them. And, and there's something about us that we, we love thinking about the future, and today, we're going to be getting into a text that deals with what the Bible calls prophecy or apocalyptic literature. This is the idea that, that God has foretold what will happen in future events. And so when you think about that, this is, this is really the stuff that, that most of the time uh, that really interests us because it's, there's something about the unknown of the future that gets us excited. And so before we get into prophecy, I want us to really take a step back and understand that when it comes to biblical prophecy, there are a number of different perspectives on how to interpret biblical prophecy. Uh, and what I would say, there's four major theological uh, beliefs or, or, or perspectives that help people understand what the Bible says. Now, it's, it's, these are kind of like shades of glasses. And if you wear these shades of glasses, you're going to see Biblically, uh, biblical prophetic text through this lens. And um, throughout the course of church history, 2,000 years of church history, these, these viewpoints have been, uh, one of these four viewpoints has been more popular than others. So I want to go over them with you, because before we get into the meat of the text, I, I want us to just have a conversation about the perspective that each of us are bringing to the text. And so the first the first uh, perspective of eschatology, and these all have to do with the millennial kingdom, the idea of what is the millennium? What is the kingdom of God? And so the first viewpoint we're going to look at is the dispensational premillennialism. Uh, dispensational premillennialism is, uh, you might, this is really popular in America and in Great Britain. It wasn't around until the 1850s is when this, I, this entire perspective came into being. But it's this idea that there is these seven dispensations, and we're going to post these charts on social media this afternoon if, you, if you're interested. But the whole idea is when Jesus came and then, and then he, he, the Jews rejected the kingdom, and so 
uh, he established the church. And so when Jesus ascended, he established the church period. The church and the kingdom are not alike. And uh, this is a belief that there's going to be a rapture. If you believe that there's a rapture, that's, that the, Jesus is going to come and take the church away. And this is very similar to the Left Behind series that was very popular in the 90s. And, uh, and when the rapture happens, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation period. And after the seven-year tribulation, Jesus returns and establishes a thousand-year reign. And then there's one final rebellion and then the eternal state. That is dispensation. I grew up with this perspective. I went to school for this. I grew up in churches like this. I went to seminary. I, I took a seminary class called Premillennial Dispensationalism. So I probably know the most about this perspective. There's another uh, way to see eschatology, and that's historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism is the belief that when Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom, okay, but he, the, the kingdom has not yet been consummated. And so what happens is we are now in this kingdom being established, the already not yet kingdom of Jesus, and uh, there's going to be some level of rebellion. Most uh, 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 historic premillennialists don't believe in a literal seven-year tribulation. They do believe that there's going to be some kind of uh, you know, rebellion at the end. But then when Jesus returns, then you have the millennium, and then there's a final uh, rebellion, and then the eternal state. Uh, this was very popular in the first 300 years after Jesus. So if you, if you were someone who was around the first 300 years until Constantine and Augustine, most, most Christians had this perspective. But right around the, the end of the fall of Rome, there's another perspective that really gained traction and that really led most Christian thinking, and it came to eschatology, and it's called amillennialism. And when I say eschatology, that is a word that simply means the study of last things or the, the study of the last, final days. So amillennialism believes that when Jesus came, he came to establish the throne, that the, all of the promises of the, the covenants of the, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, that was fulfilled completely and totally in Christ at his first advent. It means that the church, or the Israel equals the church. So, so those prophecies that God gave to Israel are, are figuratively, figuratively fulfilled in, in the church. And so there is no real, there's no specific millennium. The kingdom of God is here and now, and uh, there's going to be one final rebellion at the end, and then Jesus is just going to come and that's it. That's amillennialism. And again, this was probably the most predominant perspective for about 1,200 years in church history. And then you have the final one, which is called postmillennialism. Postmillennialism is, is a cousin to amillennialism, believe very similar things that the church equals Israel, or Israel equals the church. But it's this belief that the church is going to usher in the kingdom of God that we're going to make the, the world Christianized. We might not reach everyone, but we're preparing the world so that for Jesus is not going to come back until we reach every nation and there's enough Christians in the world that God's like, okay, Jesus, go and, and do it, and then Jesus is going to come. Now, this was very predominant from the early 1700s till about the end of World War I. Because one of the perspectives of postmillennialism is this idea of optimism for the future, that we're going to overcome the world and we're going to take the world and all these kinds of things. And after World War I, this, this view kind of died off in most colleges and seminaries. So, so, so why am I showing all this to you? Because these are perspectives that all of us have in this room. Uh, I, I know at least three of them are represented 
in amongst the staff and the elders. So, so again, it's not like, what, what are we as a church? One of the great uh, joys of being a non-denominational church is that we have a lot of people from a lot of backgrounds, a lot of maybe theological um, you know, beliefs, but we come here to Life Fellowship to say, you know, some of these other things that may not be as important, the main thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Jesus, that's what we're holding on to. And so when it comes to these perspectives, I'm just telling you right now, um, it, it's going to be difficult to teach some of these things because, again, where I am personally, and this is, again, where I would say I lean towards, I lean towards historic premillennialism. And, and, but but I, I, look at, I look at eschatology like I would look at my stock portfolio. Okay, so for example, if I was going to buy, if I was going to diversify my stocks, I would put 50% of my, of my thinking that it's probably going to be historic premillennialism. That's just me. And then I'd probably put 25% into dispensationalism just because that's what I grew up in and that's what I was taught. I'd probably put 20% into amillennialism. And just because I don't want to be wrong completely, I might put 5% into postmillennialism. All right. But all of us, you know, when it comes to eschatology, we all have this idea. And there's a couple dangers that we can, we can bring to the table when we talk about these things. The first danger is, I am 100% sure and I know exactly what it means. And if you're not 100% sure, like this is the most important thing you could ever know. No, it's not. Okay? And the reason I say I lean is because I think. Now, there's a fifth category, and that's panmillennialism. And that's whatever pans out, that's what happens. And some of you are sitting here and you're like, I'm pan-millennial, right? And, and there's, there's these times, again, I went, I've been through a, an evolution in my thinking in this. And, and what I would encourage you is, if your, if your eschatology was formed by fictional novels in the 90s, you might want to think about studying the Bible, right? And I'm not, I'm not downplaying, I'm just saying sometimes we as Christians, we don't let the Word of God shape us. And so what I would encourage you is, hey, if you... You might say, well, I align with that view, but you don't know why you align with that view. I would encourage you to read, to study, to, to discover this. But the other thing I would say is this. Don't make this the main thing. Don't make your eschatology the number one, because Jesus and telling people about Jesus is the most important thing. Okay? So don't get caught up in the, the rabbit hole of eschatology. Know what you believe. And it's okay to say, I think, because that's what, I think we also need to have a lot of humility when it comes to these kinds of things. There are certain things, there are certain doctrines I hold with my hand closed and say, you will not be able to change my mind on these things. The deity of Jesus, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. But there's other theological things I hold open-handed. And this is an open-handed issue for me. To say, you know what, I lean this way, I think this is the way it's going to be, but I could be wrong. And, And if we have that kind of humility and we have the kind of grace towards each other to say, listen, we know there's different perspectives in this room. And what I want to do with this prophetic text is say, what is the trans, uh, transcendent truths that no matter what perspective you have, you can say, okay, this is what it is. Now, some of you are saying, well, why, why don't just the, the, there's a big debate. Well, listen, do you realize this has been going on for 2,000 years? And depending on where you live and when you, listen, if you grew up in the 1700s in North America or in Europe, guess what you would have been? You would have been post-millennial. Right? If you would have been, if you would have grown up in the early church in the first 200, 300 years of church history, guess what you would have been? You would have been historic premillennial. See, these are the kinds of things that we, we, we kind of we find ourselves believing certain things, 
But many times what we believe is more a reflection of the environment we've grown up in and not necessarily a reflection of the study that we have done. And so what I'm hoping this does is I hope this stirs in you a desire to say, I need to know why I believe what I believe, but also let's hold on to these things open-handedly because we're not really sure. The one thing we are sure of that all four groups can believe in and that we hold to and it's orthodox is Jesus is coming back. Jesus will come back bodily, earthly. And so that's the one thing that all of us agree on. The one thing we might not agree on is just necessarily when or how that looks. All right? So let's read Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 to the end of the chapter. We're going to read this text that deals with this prophetic teaching. and says, now, now remember, we talked about this dream last week. Dan, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. He, it bothered him. He was going to kill the wise men because they wouldn't tell him what the dream was. Daniel goes off. He goes before God. God tells him not just uh, the interpretation of the dream. He tells him what the dream was. So this is a supernatural event about to happen. So it's, Daniel goes before the king and says, I've got the answer. And he tells him right up front, listen, this is not because of me. It's not because I'm smarter. It's not because I'm better than anyone else. It's because there's a God in heaven that showed this to me. And then he goes in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked... A stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing force. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It's this image right here behind the, uh, the, the drum set. This is the image that he saw. All right? Now Daniel's going to interpret the dream. What does this dream mean? Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. Now you can tell, again, Daniel speaks with a lot of uh, discretion. He knows he's in the, in the presence of a king, and he's buttering up the king here a little bit. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be brittle, or shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and this interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar 
fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and Lord and King, Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel, was, Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Now, this is biblical prophecy. There are some really cool things that Daniel talks about right here. But you might be saying, well, when I read that, again, we're bringing our four perspectives, and those four perspectives are like shades. They're like a shade of glasses that we wear. And if you're dispensational, you've got your pink shades on, and you're reading this and it says, this is so obviously pink. And if you're all millennial, you've got your blue shade glasses and you look, this is so obviously blue. So it's not a matter of, of whether or not this text proves one point or another. It's how you, what you're bringing, your interpretation to the text. And, and before we get into what this dream means and what it means for us today, I want us to do another um, understanding of why sometimes it's so difficult to read and understand prophecy. And I want to give you four questions that you need to learn how to ask the Bible when you're reading a text like this that feels like, okay, what are the, what are the, four, what are the four kingdoms? What are the layers? Who do they represent? What is the rock? What's the mountain? Like, you're asking all these great questions. Those are questions you're supposed to ask. But one of the dangers we can get to when we read figurative uh, or, or, or more cryptic texts of the Bible, you've got to do good Bible study. And good Bible study requires four questions. And the four questions, the first question is this, what, does the, what is the Bible saying? This is about you observing what the Bible says. You're gathering information, okay? This is really important that we do this first, asking a lot of questions. I remember taking, the, taking a Bible uh, interpretation class in seminary, and this professor made us read this one chapter 10 times, and he made us write down five or five or 10 observations every time you read it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? But what you do, it forces you to gather the, the, the information. And then once you gather the information, what is the Bible saying? The second question is, what did this text mean to the original audience? You see, one of the dangers that we run into, people who even believe in the Bible, is that many times we practice what, what theologians call eisegesis. Eisegesis is this belief that we read our meaning into the text. So the, the, if the first question you're asking when you read the passage of the Bible is, so what does this mean to me? Eh, bad question. Okay? You first have to ask, what did this mean to the original audience? Understand, what did this, what did this text mean to the, to the Jewish exiles who lived in Babylon? If we understand what this text meant to them, then... The next question we have to ask is, how does that meaning correlate to us today? So that's what we call exegesis, that we're drawing the meaning out of the text. If you read, if you read this Bible passage and you already have your, you know, your shade of glasses on, and you're like, well, this is what it means. You know, take a step back and say, okay, what, how would the original audience take this? How did they interpret it? And then how do we correlate that to us today? And then the last question is, so what am I going to do about it? How do I apply this to my life? So this is, this is, these are good questions to ask, no matter what passage of Scripture you read. But this is really important when it comes to prophecy, because when it comes to pro prophecy in the Bible, again, we all bring our own predisposed 
perspective on what we believe it means. And I just want us, again, to have some humility to say, well, maybe, maybe there's something I'm reading here in this text that doesn't fit into my man-made theological system. And that's one of the hardest things we do, is that when we have our man-made theological system, and there's a verse that doesn't fit in that man-made theological system, guess what? Sometimes you might have to change your man-made theological system. And understand there are certain parts of the Bible that, that embrace this idea of mystery. That, yeah, we think it might mean this, or it may mean this, but you know what? At the end of the day, God knows. And I'm okay with that. And so, so understanding what's going on here in this text, what is the main idea that, that we can take away? Well, again, if you, are, if you are a 6th century Jew and you're living in Babylon in exile, how do you think you take this text? You know, let's, let's put ourselves in their shoes. They, they've been taken out of their homeland. There's no more king sitting on the throne of David. There's no more temple. There's no more priesthood. There's no, there's no more the, the normalcy of our, of our faith, the normalcy of our, our religious life. All the systems, all the structures are gone. And what I want to know, what every single Jewish person is thinking as they are living and walking in Babylon is, what does the future hold for the kingdom of God? What's going to happen? I mean, God has all, there's all these promises that God has made to us that have yet to be fulfilled. And so, is there something wrong with God? Is there something wrong with us? And so, one of the things that this dream teaches us is that God has a plan that cannot be thwarted by human authority. If there's one idea that we need to pull away from this text is that God has a plan that cannot be thwarted by human authority. Just like we looked at last week, that God is working in Babylon. The whole idea of this prophetic text is that God has a plan. What, what all of us need to remember and what all of us need in these moments is to believe that God has a plan. You know, when, we, when I was a kid, my, my, my mom is from West Palm Beach, Florida. And about every Christmas, every other Christmas, we would, we would load up our car, whether we lived in Northern Virginia or Northeast Pennsylvania, and we would take the long drive down, loading up our, our Ford LTD station wagon. And, uh, you know, we, my dad would drive through the night. You know, he'd lay, all, he'd lay the, into all the seats down in the back, and he'd put some blankets down. I, I know some of your parents are like, <gasps> like, that's how we rolled back in the 80s, all right? We just laid, we just put all the seats down, and we all laid in the back seat. No one cared about that kind of stuff. And um, that's, that, and, and, and as a kid, I remember when we loaded up that car at night, and we were going to drive. There was, not, there was no question in my mind that we weren't going to make it. Because you know why? My dad was driving the car. And he's driven this. He, he had done this trip so many times. And I knew I could go to bed with my head on, you know, on that little pillow laying in the back seat with my, my brother and my sister all laying down there. And I knew I was going to wake up somewhere in North Florida. And, and we were going to get there. And I think for us, we've got to remember there's a God who's driving the car. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be worried. And, and that's my, my first point is this. God, not, not only does God have a plan, God has a plan for the future. God has a plan for the future. Now, this is really important to remember that Daniel is writing this as prophecy. He is writing this in the 6th century B.C., which means that he is foretelling history. We know these four kingdoms that he mentions here in Daniel 2, these are the four kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. 
He is predicting the future. And it's easy for us, 2,000, 2,500 years removed from this event, to look at this and be like, whoa. And there's a lot of people that have an anti-supernatural perspective that say, there's no way that Daniel got all of those prophecies right. Therefore, the writing of the book of Daniel must have been somewhere around the second century B.C. Because there's no way someone could have accurately predicted all of these things happening. And, and I, I just want to push back again. One of the most important things that we can do is defend an early authorship of the book of Daniel. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, wrote the book of Daniel in the 6th century. And there's a number of reasons why I believe that's true. The first reason is why, the first reason why is because Jesus, in Matthew 24, when quoting the book of Daniel, said, and the prophet Daniel wrote and said. So if Jesus, who we believe is the Son of God, who we, believe, who we know that cannot lie, says that Daniel wrote Daniel. Guess who wrote Daniel? Daniel. The man who lived during this time of Nebuchadnezzar, he wrote these things. But there's, a, there's a, some other extra-biblical proof that we have. Another reason we believe that Daniel, a later or an early date of Daniel, is that we see Daniel being used before it was these scholars think it was written. Um, we, we, for example, the, historic, the Jewish historian Josephus, when he was writing about the Jewish histories, um, he said that when Alexander the Great was, was conquering the world, he gets to Jerusalem, and who's waiting to greet him are the, is the priesthood. They're lined up, and the high priest is waiting for him. And this is not like most cities. Most cities he would have to fight or, or negotiate, but, he, but they welcomed him with open arms. And the reason why is because they, they, they told uh, Alexander the Great, we've been expecting you. And they led Alexander into the temple, and they opened up the book of Daniel to show him how Daniel had accurately prophesied the rise of Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, again, being a narcissistic egomaniac whose dictator thought this is the greatest thing ever. And he, and, he, and he celebrated Jerusalem, gave him uh, freedom of religion. But if, if Daniel was not written prior to that and was written after, after that, then that whole story was made up and we know it wasn't. Another example we see is there's other books that were written around the 2nd century B.C., First Enoch, Tobit, Ecclesiasticus, what, what scholars call apocryphal literature, draw heavily on the book of Daniel. And the reason why that's important is because Books that were written, that, that drew on other literature, meant that that literature was older than it. And so you didn't use, necessarily use contemporary literature, you drew on established um, biblical literature. And so we, that's another example of, a, of an early date of Daniel. But really the most important thing is this. If Daniel didn't write Daniel, if Daniel is not a predictive apocalyptic book, then the whole narrative is a lie. It's a lie. It's not some allegory. It's not some, you know, oh, now that these things happen, we can write about them and, and give them spiritual meaning. The whole idea is that in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of, of human chaos and darkness, God is faithful to his people. That is the message of Daniel. And therefore, if it is, a, it is not a prophetic predictive book, then that message comes under fire. And what is the message of Daniel then? And so I think it's really important we understand that this is, a, this is a foretelling of the future. God knows what's going to happen in the future. The future is in God's hands. And for that, that should, that should make us feel something. Now think about, again, you're a Jewish, you're, you're Jewish, Jewish person living in Babylon. Hearing this prophecy should give you some sense that, man, 
okay, I guess I don't have to be afraid. I guess I don't need to worry so much. You know, when you think about the future, what, what are the emotions that you feel? What are the thoughts and the feelings you have when it comes to the future? I've heard from a lot of young people, um, younger couples, younger people, the younger generation Z, they're saying, man, I don't want to have kids because I'm so scared of what the future is going to look like. They have this, they have this, this almost um, you know, negative perspective on the future. And, and one of the things we need to remember is that, l- listen, if God holds the future in his hands, you and I can have a sense of hope and comfort. You know, my grandmother came to live with my, my parents. My parents lived next door to us for about 10 years. And when my grandmother, grandmother got diagnosed with dementia, she couldn't live by herself anymore. And so she came up to live with my mom and dad. And it was great having my grandma uh, live next door for, for my kids to get to know her. And, and I've never really got to live by her in my life. And so that was fun to get to see her, you know, every few days. And, um, but my grandmother, towards the, you know, towards the end, um, all she would do is sit in her bed and watch Fox News all day. And, and there's, when you sit in bed and watch Fox News all day, and when I would go see my grandma, hey, Graham, how you doing? Oh, it's so bad. I just want Jesus to come back. Jesus, I just want Jesus to come back. You know, every time we have a birthday with Graham, Graham, you know, you're 90. Yeah, she's like, I just want Jesus to take me home. And, and she had this pessimistic, like, get me out of here. The world is messed up. The world is dark. And I just want to get out of here. Now listen, if you watch Fox News all day, you will want the rapture to happen like right now. And, and, and the problem with that is it, it keeps us, again, from really having a biblical perspective on human events. And, and what we've got to do is this. God is giving us a perspective on the wide-angle view of human history. That's what prophecy is supposed to do with books like Daniel and Revelation. Give us a wide-angle view of things and not get so caught up in, this is what is going on in my world, in my life, in my country right now that makes me feel the anxiety and the fear right now. We've got to fight against this perspective, and we've got to say, no, no, no. We believe that God is ruling and reigning, and we believe that God's in charge, and we believe that God has the future in his hands. So you know what? I can rest well. I can have comfort. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be overwhelmed with anxiety. And that is, I don't care what your millennial perspective is, all of us believe that God has the future in his hands. And he has a plan. And it will not be thwarted by anyone. And that should make us sleep well at night. No matter what president is making any speech, no matter whatever politician is doing, it, it, it's just, I can have hope. I can have comfort. The second thing that we see is God not only, not only has a plan for the future, God has a plan for every human kingdom. God has a plan for every human kingdom. God gives Nebuchadnezzar this dream about what's going to happen in the future. And again, these four, these four layers of this of this statue represent these four kingdoms. The gold represents Babylon. The silver represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The, the bronze represents the Greek Empire. And then the, the, the iron and the iron mixed with clay represent the Roman Empire. Now, now there are some people but that believe that, that the feet and the toes mixed with clay, that represents a fifth kingdom. But again, what I would say is, if you're, again, you're just going to read the, the text plainly, and you don't bring any of your predisposed baggage to it, 
Here's what we see. Four kingdoms. And we also see four kingdoms in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is a parallel passage to Daniel 2. There are four beasts. The four beasts right over here in this graphic of Daniel 7 are parallel the four layers of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. And so I don't, re- I don't see a fifth kingdom here. I believe it accurately predicts or, or describes what the Roman kingdom was like. But the whole idea is about these kingdoms is that each of these kingdoms have a time where they ascend and when these kingdoms fall. And who is in charge of when kingdoms rise and fall? It's God. God is the one who knows when a, king's, when a, when a nation and when a kingdom will rise. And he knows and is in control of when a nation and when a kingdom falls. Why is that important for us today? It's important for us today because we need to remember that, that the kingdom, we're, we're just, the American kingdom is just another long line of kingdoms that have been on the face of this earth. If you're, if you're a Jewish person and you're reading this and you're saying, okay, um, yes, so yeah, the, the temple's no longer around. There's no one sitting on the throne of David. But, but you know what? Here's what I know. Even though Babylon took us over, they don't win. They, they don't get, to, they don't get to, to determine what our future is. God is the one who's got that in control. And so God is the one who rules and reigns over these kingdoms. He's the one who tears them down. He's the one that raises them up. But the question we have to ask is, what makes these nations rise and fall? Well, well, well usually it has to, how, how, God, how nations rise is God chooses, all right, I'm going to use this nation for a reason. But how nations fall is a completely other thing. And what we see throughout Scripture is that when, when God tears down a nation, it's because their sin has reached a point where it says, all right, it's reached its full measure. All right, it's, it's kind of like this. Uh, do you guys remember science class when you had those beakers that you had in, in, in I think it was chemistry or whatever, and you, and you had these little beakers and you had these lines on the beaker and you had to put certain substances in the beaker uh, to fill them up. The whole idea is these na- all nations have a, have a set standard of, of what fills them up before God's like, okay, I've had enough. You know, you, you've all heard your mom or dad say, all right, that's it. We've had enough. If you're a mom or dad, you've probably said it this week. All right, that's it. No devices for the rest of the month, right? God has a limit. Just as much as it says that God is, is gracious, he's merciful, he's compassionate, he's long-suffering, he is also a God who must punish sin. And there's, there's the biblical text that proves this. All right, Genesis chapter 15, when God shows Abraham the stars in the sky and says, I'm going to give you this land for your descendants, but not until the Amorites, their iniquity is not yet complete. It means that all these people that live here, there's there's a level of sin they have to reach before I I bring my judgment on them. God is not, he's not surprised. He is never reactionary. He just says, there's this is a set limit of sin I've put on this nation. And the moment they cross that threshold... That's when judgment comes. We see this again in Daniel chapter 23. We're going to get to these passages later. It says the latter end of, that, of their kingdom when the transgressors have reached their limit. So when he tears down that kingdom is when their transgressions, their sins have reached the limit. But he says, okay, enough. Daniel chapter 9 verse 24. The 70 weeks are decreed to finish the transgression. There's this idea that there's transgressions that, that have to be met before God acts. We see this in Matthew 23 when God, 
where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, to, calls them these brood of vipers who fill up the measure, talking about sin, of your fathers. Talking about the judgment of these people, saying there's judgment coming upon you because your sins are filling up the measure that, that you have for your people. And then uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16, when Paul talks about the enemies of the gospel, they, they always fill up the measure of their sins. This is a, this is a biblical idea that is, that is from Genesis to the New Testament, that God has an idea of how much he will allow a certain nation, a certain kingdom to allow sin, and at some point he says, enough. Now, what does that mean for our nation? I think for us, what it, there's a couple things it makes me do. It gives me a sense of urgency that I think we need to have as a nation. Again, I, I, I don't want us to be, I, I'm not going to go pessimistic. I'm not going to throw up my hands and be like, well, our, our nation is shot. You know, it's just a matter of time. Just matter, listen, what I, what I want to do as I think about this, when I think about what God is doing in the biblical framework of he has for nations and kingdoms, here's the way I feel. God, don't let this happen on my watch. God, I want to be a part of a revival. God, I, know, I look at the sins that are going around in our nation. I look at the, how, how sin is, has come to the mainstream. I talked about that the very first week that we talk, talked about, about Daniel. And here's what's stirring inside of me. God, don't let this happen to, 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 to my lifetime. God, let there be a revival. We are filling up the measure of sins for our nation. But I also know this, that God in his mercy sometimes says, okay, I'll hold off. When I look at how he even handled the, the nation of Judah when, when he was going to bring judgment and then King Josiah came to, to authority. And what did he do? He said, you know what? Let's follow God. And delayed the inevitable judgment of their nation by decades. Listen, I don't know what God's plan is for our specific human nation. I don't know what his plan is for every other human nation. But I know this, God doesn't play favorites. God's not up in heaven draped with an American flag over his shoulders and being like, man, I'm just going to, you know, whatever. I really don't like the Chinese. Like, our, you know, the, the global competitors and enemies of our geopolitical norm is not God's enemies. God's enemies are his enemies. Whether they be American, Russian, European, whatever, Chinese, it doesn't matter. God doesn't look at the world the way we look at the world. And so one of the things we've got to do is say, okay, I've got some choices to make. I, I, God, I know there's a lot of sin going on in our nation. But God, I want to do everything I possibly can to make sure this doesn't happen on my watch. That this doesn't happen to my children's generation. And God, I, I'm praying for a revival to take place. This should make us pray, and this should make us share our faith like we've never had before. If, we, if this is true, and the reality of our nation is happening, this should change the way we live. And that leads me to the, my, my final point. God not only has a plan for the future, he has a plan for every human kingdom. God has a plan for his kingdom. God has a plan for his kingdom. You know, one of the dangers that we find is we bind ourselves to one of those layers in the statue. We bind ourselves to the layer of the kingdom that we find ourselves in and saying, but I love my kingdom. And it might not even be the American thing. It might just be my own personal life. It might be my, like I've created a kingdom of, for myself, my own job, my own life, my own existence, my own family. And my kingdom is what matters most, that I have everything that I need for my life. And me, 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 me. 
One of the most dangerous things that we can do is be more committed to our own kingdom than the kingdom of God. And the, the kingdom of God is real. And that's what Daniel is saying is there's going to come a kingdom. And it represents the rock that's cut out, not by any human hand. This is not a kingdom that was established by human authority, but by God's authority. And that rock, I believe, represents Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came, he smashed into the Roman kingdom and it started. he inaugurated the kingdom of God and said, listen, the kingdom is here now. And what that mountain that represents, that rock that becomes a mountain, is, is, is all of this imagery we see that, that Daniel is using in this dream fits the biblical narrative. Again, one of the things that, that we see over and over and over again is we, we see in every story up to this point, Daniel knew the word of God. He knew the word of God. And, and he, he's, he's drawing up analogies from, from the Torah, and we see this again. And, and I want, there's another uh, 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 screen I want to show you that the imagery and the language that da- Daniel uses fits other biblical passages that Daniel would have been familiar with. For example, the rock smashing the statue fits the image of, remember, there's a psalm. I preached on the psalm this summer of Jesus as king, right? God as king. And in these kingdom psalms, and it says when, when, the, when Jesus comes, he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron and smash every kingdom into pieces. What do we see fulfilled here in Daniel 2? Jesus coming and smashing the kingdoms into pieces. Then we see this other imagery, the nations becoming dust and being swept away. Uh, it's, it's another biblical imagery of Psalm chapter 1, verse 4, when it talks about how the, the, the ungodly are not so. They're, they're like the chaff that the wind blows away. And again, the, the biblical imagery that Daniel's using. And then that, that, that rock that becomes a mountain and overcomes the earth is this idea of the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4. That there's these prophetic utterances that happened 150 years before Daniel that says, listen, at one day there's going to come a time when, when the kingdom of God, the mountain of God, and it uses this analogy of a mountain, it's going to be the highest mountain that people will come to worship in from all the nations of the world. will come to God's mountain. And, and when you see these biblical images in, in earlier in the text of the Bible, here's what you have to understand. Daniel knew it. Daniel knew the word of God. Listen, if there's one thing we have said over and over and over again every week, and it's my challenge to you again, we have to know the word of God. 